Uh, good evening again, all of you who are here, anyone who's new uh, from this morning. I uh, greet myself to you, Cameron Porter from Free Grace Baptist Church. Happy to help out while uh, Mike is taking a, a needed and deserved vacation in the church in Chilliwack. Uh, brings its greetings, and um, just know that we're always praying for you and your pastor. You can turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24 for our meditation this evening. We're going to specifically focus on verses 36 to 53, but we'll read the entire chapter to set it in its rightful context as it unfolds for us the reality of our blessed resurrected Savior, victorious upon the cross and now rising in power and victory on the third day. So this is Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the triune God. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at, the, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. 
Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened that they knew him and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding, uh, their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for your time uh, that we have, for the time that you've given us for worship this evening. We rejoice that we can gather a second time in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the worship of our glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we do just pray that you bless our time now in the preaching of the word, uh, that you would strengthen preacher, that you would be with hearer, that you would cause this act of worship to be unto your glory for the edification of saints and for the salvation of sinners. And we, we pray in earnest in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come to the, the Gospel of Luke and specifically here at uh, chapter 24, but the Gospel of Luke as a whole, and we, we come to an account that, that is not fable. It is not fairy tale. When we come to the Holy Scriptures, we come not to a collection of uh, a collection of dusty old books slapped together in one large tome uh, that bear nothing in the way of history, that bear nothing in the way of truth. But we come to the scriptures and we have these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, and they are verity, they are truth, they are the very word of God, inerrant, infallible, and inspired. And in this account in Luke chapter 24, we have this blessed historicity, that is the true history, the authentic history of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, just as he had promised, and just as the scriptures had foretold. If uh, Howie, would you be able to, to uh, is it the, the fan blowing on me or my pages keep turning? I'll manage it. No problem because you can't, um, oh, we need people to be cool. So I'll just, uh, j- 
keep the fans going. Forget I even said anything. Back to sacred things. Luke chapter 24. Um, we have the historicity of the, of the gospel account of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the word of God to men that declares with certain truth a resurrected champion. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected champion. Truly God and truly man, the one who took on our humanity to die for sinners and to rise again. And we come to, we come to a, a reality, a truth that has been cardinal in the history of Christianity. If we were to scan, if we were to examine the creeds and the confessions throughout the history of the church, we would see oft repeated that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Sometimes there are variations, Christ was put to death, Christ was buried, Christ was risen, and Christ will come again. But all of this to say that this is a verity, this is a truth, this is an inescapable yet glorious reality that the Lord Jesus Christ, though, death, though dead upon Calvary's cross, was made alive by the power of God and was raised the third day. The day of days in this account had come. The hour of hours had come where the Son of God was put to death upon Calvary's cross to use borrowed language from the ancient church when the one who fixed the stars in place was fixed in place upon a tree. He had given his life for guilty sinners, and now in great power and in great victory, victory, he has risen again the third day. And our passage of focus here, verses 36 to 53, we have three things that we want to observe with regards to our blessed Savior, who was raised again the third day. And those three things are the comfort of the resurrected Christ, the teaching of the resurrected Christ, and the ascension of the resurrected Christ. So first off, let's look at the comfort of the resurrected Christ. Notice at verse 36, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, you may have heard it before, and it's right, that this peace to you is a very customary, uh, you know, Judaic greeting, a first century Judaic uh, greeting at this particular time, peace to you. It it might be uh, tantamount to or parallel to uh, sort of our our modern hello, but we don't want to re reduce Christ's peace to you to some sort of simple cordiality or a superficial greeting. You know, very, very often we engage in these super uh, superficial greetings. In fact, my my host for lunch today and I were speaking a little bit about that. We often, you know, just say, hey, how you doing? And the person responds and says, fine, how are you? Oh, fine. It's just a, it's just a superficial exercise. Yes, certainly that person that we're talking to might be a friend. They might be a loved one. But if we're honest with each other, very often when we say, hi, how, you, how are you doing? We sometimes don't care as much as we should when we say that. And sometimes when we say I'm fine, we're really not. Uh, and it's just a way of uh, just a way of superficially engaging in conversation. Let us always try to be genuine when we can, but sometimes it's hard to to escape custom. Anyway, getting back to the Lord Jesus Christ, His peace to you is full of much more than just a common hello. He is comforting His disciples that He is appearing to. They were just they were just in chaos. They were scattered. Uh, many of them had scattered the. The sheep had scattered and departed their shepherd as he was being put to death upon Calvary's cross. Subsequent to the, the crucifixion, no doubt there would have been a, a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear, a lot of apprehension, because their master would, was just crucified. What will happen to their servants? 
Um, and so a lot was going on. Their master was just crucified. They are not yet fully engaged in the, the intellectual grasp and the, the glorious grasp of the fact that this one who said he would rise again really has risen again and really would rise again. And so they are filled with fear. They're filled with apprehension. They're filled with a lot of those things. And Christ comes to them and he says, peace to you. And it should have been a comfort. And in, in, in retrospect for these apostles, no doubt it was. But we'll see as the passage progresses that it wasn't immediately a comfort, though Christ delivers it as such. And this language of peace to you, delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, is full of blessed theology. The, the language of peace is replete throughout the gospel accounts and throughout the New Testament attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just for a quick sample, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles, if you can, first to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, we're looking at peace as it pertains to Jesus Christ, the Lord, that he's not engaging in a simple cordiality. He's not engaging in superficial greeting, but he is bringing to bear the comfort that he as the Savior and the Redeemer of men brings. In Ephesians chapter 2, notice what we have beginning at verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished his flesh in his flesh, the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near." For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You see the, the threefold declaration of peace here attached to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peace, he makes peace, and he preaches peace. So when Christ comes and he says, peace to you, it is full of blessed things. We have that language of Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that declaration of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1 at verse 20, that Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Wonderful thing. And so Christ comes and he delivers these words to his disciples. Again, it is rich with theology. It is rich with the love of the redeeming king, not a cordiality and not a superficiality, but a blessed peace to you that was designed to bring comfort to his disciples. So, under the comfort of the resurrected Christ, we notice that first, his salutation, peace to you. And we notice second, his demonstration. Why are you troubled? He goes on to say later. Now, first off, we need to notice, though, before we see this briefly, look at verse 37. But they, that is the disciples, were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And so this peace to you, delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ, did not have its 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 effect. That was by divine design, because by divine design, Christ engages in this didactic exercise of bringing them from the place of fear to the place of worshiping and adoring him. And so it's not because Christ's greeting was ineffectual. It's because the disciples, in their remaining ignorance, have not yet come to the place where they have embraced the resurrected Christ 
um, in its fullness of truth. And so they're terrified, they're frightened, they suppose they have seen a spirit, and now notice Christ's demonstration. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? First, he has a display of divinity. So under this topic of Christ's demonstration, we first see this demonstration or display of his divinity. And where do we see that? In the question, more likely the second question that's asked, why are you troubled? He could see that they were troubled because they're terrified and frightened. There there would have been, no doubt, some visual cues that would display that they're perhaps terrified that they are terrified and frightened. But he goes on to say, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see, there is only one who searches the hearts of the sons of men. And that's the Lord God Almighty. There's only one who knows the inner thoughts, the inner things, the hearts of mankind. And that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one and only living and true God. And this resurrected Christ being the second of the blessed triune in his incarnate yet glorified body, asks the question, why do doubts arise in your hearts? He's displaying his divinity, which would hopefully come as a comfort to these. When they say, this one knows what are the inner thoughts of our hearts. He knows that doubts are arising in our hearts. That should be a comfort to them. This is the Christ. This is the one who is God and man. This is the one who knows the thoughts, who knows the hearts of the sons of men. And so they ought to have been comforted by that, and it was designed such. Uh, Secondly, under his demonstration, we see his appeal to sight. Notice he goes on to say, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. You know, there's a kindness that we ought to see here in the resurrected Savior. He He doesn't come with this strong rebuke. He doesn't come with the, you know, the strong and mighty arm of a Uh, of of rebuke and correction to his disciples but realizing their frame understanding their hearts and and knowing them in loving kindness he says behold my hands and my feet that it is i myself he points to the markings he points to the, the those victory markings of the crucifixion he was pierced in his hands he was pierced in his feet we could see contained within this See also the wound in my side. He is showing to them the victorious wounds of the crucifixion. They know that he was crucified. They know to a truth that he was crucified and to show that he is not some specter, that he is just not some phantom or spirit or ghost that is appearing to them, but actually the true and resurrected Christ, he shows those victory marks of the crucifixion. Isn't that a blessed thing? You see, the glorified Christ even as he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, is not absent of the print, the print of the nails in his hands. He is not absent of the print of the nails in his feet, and he is not absent of the wound in his side, but much rather they are the eternal display of his mediatorial glory. They are the eternal display of his victory at Calvary's cross. They are the eternal display of him crushing the head of the serpent, that hero born of woman. And so when he says, behold, my hands and my feet, he is showing to them that, yes, I am the crucified Christ, whom you know, but I am now the resurrected Christ, who in pre-ascension glory is coming to you and is delivering the things of blessed truth. So he appeals to their sight. And thirdly, he appeals to touch. Notice the next clause, the next sentence. 
handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So the Lord Jesus Christ here answers their doubts. He answers their their state of being terrified and frightened by saying, well, first off, look and see, and now handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. The kindness of the resurrected Savior continues. Look at me and see, handle me and see. They, they continue in their doubting. They continue, as we'll later see in a, in a moment, even in joy, yet marveling, they're still not entirely grasping the glory of the resurrected Christ. But we see here that the Lord Jesus says, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you, as you see I have. There, there, was a, there were a number of, uh, of early Christological heresies in the early church that denied the the, the real humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he just appeared as a phantom or as a spirit. Because of the, 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 their Gnostic denial that, or their Gnostic rejection of the physical reality, they thought that the Lord Jesus Christ could not have assumed humanity because all that is physical is wicked. This comes as a, you know, as a, as a nail in the coffin of such Christological madness. The Lord Jesus Christ says, handle me and see, I'm not a spirit. He is true man. He is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men. And he says, handle me and see the kindness of the resurrected Savior. Lastly, under his demonstration, we want to note his appeal to human action. You see, the kindness of the Savior continues in more of a display, more of a demonstration of the truth of his victorious crucifixion, the truth of his victorious rising again from the dead. We see, notice in verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I I don't know about you, but I just, I, I love the patience of our Redeemer here, the patience of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They continue in doubt. He's, he's, he's appeared to them and, and spoken to them. He said, look at me, look at the print of the nails in my hands and in my feet, look at my side. He said, even handle me, and yet they still doubt. The text says, they, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled. So in that continuing kindness of the resurrected king, he says, have you any food here? Because you're still in doubt because you're still uh, in joy and in marveling, yet in a measure of unbelief, not fully grasping the truth of my resurrection. If you have some food, I'll, I'll eat in front of you and I'll see. Phantoms and spirits, specters can't eat. The Lord Jesus Christ in his patient kindness says, have you any food here? And he takes the fish and the honeycomb and he eats it in their presence. Christ in his kindness. I, I think we see, we are to see here, I I think it's a wholesome conjecture that we have the, uh, you know, the, the, the wherewithal to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, in, these, uh, in his engagements in this post-resurrection scene, isn't speaking with, with a furled brow and, and upset eyes at these people who aren't grasping the truth. I don't think we're to see that. Even in verse 25, when we read, then he said to him, "Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. I don't think we're supposed to, to you know, we're not to, to conjure vain imaginings of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in our mind, but Christ isn't pointing him with a, you know, with furled brow pointing at him and, and just rebuking him in some measure of anger. 
No, he's, he is with joy. Remember, the, remember in Hebrews 12, or if you recall Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the, the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. So prior to sitting down at the right hand of, the, of God, in that state of joy, because he, have, he has finished the work that the Father has given him, in that state of joy, because he has redeemed the, the elect that had been given to him by his Father, he, I believe, in joy, and yet didactically, that is with instruction, is saying, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And so when we get to the words of Christ here in our passage, we are to see the same. And I think that point is punctuated and verified by the fact that Christ is exercising this patience in his demonstration of his, uh, the truth of his resurrection. So moving on then, the teaching of the resurrected Christ. First off, we have the comfort of the resurrected Christ, and then secondly, the teaching of the resurrected Christ. And we want to notice a number of things here. First off, his reminder in verse 44a. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He wants to remind them. You see, they're still... Uh, they're still uh, th this passage, passage is still true of them, verse 41, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, now he's moving them along to this particular point of grasping with great joy the veracity of his resurrection, the truthfulness of his resurrection, but he has to remind them that beforehand I have spoken to you on a number of occasions, I have given you, uh, I had proclaimed the truth, I had told you that I would be put to death by lawless hands but that I would rise again the third day. In fact, just very briefly, a quick scan of those passages in the Gospel of Luke where we see that. Notice at Luke 9 in chapter 22, Luke 9 in verse 22, that's Luke 9, verse 22, beginning at verse 21, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and be raised the third day. So he had announced to them on this occasion that he would be put to death, but rise again the third day. And then if we turn to Luke 13 and verse 32, notice what we find there. And he came to them uh, and he said to them, go tell that fox, which is most likely Herod, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Do you love the, the, the reply to the Savior? Go tell that fox. You see, our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't back away from firm language when, those who, uh, when, when the, there were those who needed to hear the firm language of the blessed king. Go tell that fox, and then the third day I shall be perfected, which is, of course, a reference to his resurrection on the third day. And then Luke 18, the three passages that declare, uh, where, that find Christ declaring the truth of his forthcoming death and resurrection. In Luke 18, we see at verse 33, uh, we'll, we'll back up to verse 31, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. 
For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So you see, Christ is, appeal, is appealing to, is appealing by reminder to the fact that he had told them beforehand that he would be crucified and put to death, but he would rise the third day. Notice, though, if you're still there at Luke 18, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So when we get to when we get to the post-resurrection scene that we're at right now, we can understand something of what was mentioned earlier, and that is that by divine design, God had purpose such that they would not come to the full realization of the resurrected Christ until this post-resurrection appearance in Bible study when he would equip his disciples for the work of going about and preaching Christ to all nations. And so the teaching of the resurrected Christ is seen first in this reminder that he gives them. Verse 44, back in Luke 24, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Secondly, we see his instruction. We see his instruction that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You see, Christ in his graciousness, Christ in his kindness, gives this post-resurrection Bible study to his audience. Isn't it a blessed thing? Imagine, you know, just getting a Bible study by the Lord Jesus Christ. Must have been amazing for these uh, disciples, having been, having been uh, besieged a bit by unbelief, by doubt, having not yet fully grasped the truth of what would happen, of what Christ previously announced, They now get a Bible study by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this instruction comes uh, comes with the weight and with the reality that Christ is what we call the scope of Scripture. He is the subject of Holy Scripture. He is the sum and substance of biblical revelation. As we noted this morning, all the streams of Old Testament, Old Covenant revelation, find their confluence in one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the stream of prophecy, the, the stream of sacrifices and ceremonies, the streams of typology, prophets, priests, kings, all of those blessed streams of old covenant revelation find their confluence and their fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. As Spurgeon, as Spurgeon said in his preaching, Chapter after chapter, page after page, verse upon verse, discloses to us Christ upon the cross working out the salvation of men. And he's not talking only about the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Nehemiah Cox, who's an old particular Baptist from the 17th century, wrote these words, In all our search after the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures, we are to manage our inquiries with reference to Christ. So when we come to the Old Testament scriptures, it's not, an, it's not a Christless covenant. It's not a Christless set of, of books in the Old Testament, but much rather it is Christ full. It is Christotelic. There's another word for you. It, it all leads to Christ. It points forward. It has a Christward trajectory. It is Christocentric. It is replete with Christ from that first promise. Even before the the first promise, God spoke by his word. 
And with that promise, the hero born of woman that would crush the serpent with his heel, that will crush the serpent with his heel. And from there on through to the actual fulfillment of the event by the risen king, we have divine revelation coming to that blessed head in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the terminus. He is the scope of divine revelation. There's a, there's a quote, it's a long one here, but I hope you'll appreciate it by John Owen. And we need to understand, you see, because there are, uh, there are approaches to the Bible, there are approaches to Christianity that, that reject this idea that the Old Testament scriptures are about Christ. They might say, they might grant that, okay, yes, there are portions that are speaking of Christ, but there are other things that are of major concern in addition to that, such as perhaps the nation of Israel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But you see, all of those other things are uh, revealed, take place, are divinely ordained in order to bring forth the Christ in the fullness of the times, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And so this quote from John Owen speaks well with regards to the scope of divine revelation, finding its blessed terminus in Jesus Christ the Lord. The great design whose lines are drawn in the face and whose substance lies in the bowels of the Old Testament, and which is the spirit that enlivens the whole doctrine and story of it, the bond of union wherein all the parts of it do center, without which they would loose scattered and deformed heaps, is the bringing forth of Messiah, the Savior of the world. Without an apprehension of this design and faith therein, neither can a letter of it be understood." nor can a rational man discover any important excellency in it. Him it promiseth, him it typifieth, him it teacheth and prophesieth about, him it calls all men to desire and expect. And so Christ brings his disciples in this Bible study to realize that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of prophets, the, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. He gives them a blessed instruction. And notice, thirdly, under the teaching of the resurrected Christ, we have his enabling grace. His enabling grace. And he opened their understanding, verse 45, that they might comprehend the scriptures. We're not to see this in that sort of uh, Lydia, the, um, uh, the seller of purple reality, in the salvific opening up of the heart or the opening up of the understanding because they were already saved. They were already Christians. We are to see an exercise of grace rather upon those saved by amazing grace that they might more fully understand the truths with regards to Jesus Christ. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. This brings us to a very important note that we need the enabling grace of God in order that we might understand the scriptures. We cannot come to the Bible as, uh, as men, as women, as boys, as girls, and with our own strength and with the, you know, with the own, with, with the own, with our own gears in our minds moving, come to the scriptures and apprehend the truth therein. We need the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God in order to instruct us and to help us to understand, to comprehend the scriptures. And we ought to always pray for this, whether we're in, uh, whether we're in church, we're, it, we're sitting and we're listening to the word read, the word preached, whether we're reading it ourselves or engaging in family devotions, a family worship, we are to pray that God would give us the grace to understand his holy word. 
Isn't that, should not that be the desire of all of us to know his word, to know the Christ to whom it points better, to know our God better, better Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We ought to always pray, God, open up our understanding that we might comprehend the scriptures. He gives them an enabling grace. We read in, our, in the second London Confession of Faith at paragraph 5 of chapter 1, the following words, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. So, so this, is, this is speaking prior to having been saved, or just someone, so, uh, a, a non-Christian, for example, that we, ca- we might be moved or induced by the testimony, testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. But it goes on, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Now note, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. We ought to always pray for that, that the Holy Spirit would would bear witness in our hearts to the truth of the Holy Scriptures. Christ gives his disciples an enabling grace, not a saving grace, for they already had that, but an enabling grace that they might understand to fullness the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing of his resurrection. Lastly, under the teaching of the resurrected Christ, I want us to see here his preparatory words in verses 46 to 49. Notice his preparatory words. First off, he emphasizes the settled and necessary reality of his death and resurrection. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So again, he emphasizes the settled and the necessary reality of his death and resurrection. These things needed to occur. These things needed to occur. I needed to rescue my people. I needed to save my people from their sins. I needed to to go. I was by divine preparation and foreordination. I was prepared by God to go unto the cross, to go to that Roman gibbet of execution that I might give myself and shed my blood for guilty sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the necessity of his death, the necessity that the Christ was to suffer, and the necessity that he was to rise again the third day. And why was that necessary? Because of the fall of man, because of reigning sin, because of the sinfulness, the depravity, the injustice, the unholiness of mankind simply because of the sin of man. We needed a rescuer. We needed a champion. We needed one very God and very man, yet one Christ, to redeem us from our sins. We were recently studying the doctrine of good works uh, in our church uh, from chapter 16 in the Confession of Faith, and one of the things it brings out there is that man cannot, by his best performance, fulfill the act of obedience of God or satisfy the penal justice of God. 
That's why good works can't save us. A couple of the reasons why good works can't save us, why deeds of righteousness were not saved by them, but much rather by his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We needed one who can, though, satisfy the act of obedience demands of God, that is, performing the law perpetually, personally, entirely, and exactly. And Christ did that. He did that substitutionarily. He did it vicariously. He did it in our place and in our stead. He fulfilled the law's demands, and he did so perfectly. And we cannot, by our best performance, satisfy the penal justice demands of God. We have violated his holy law. We have transgressed his blessed statutes and precepts, time upon time, hour upon hour, minute upon minute, second upon second. And we cannot, by our best performance, satisfy the penal justice of God, but there is one who has, and it is this Christ who suffered and who rose again from the dead. And you see, this resurrection from the dead punctuates the veracity that the completion of salvation was executed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The resurrection is a, is a large exclamation mark that the promised one did do what the promised one was sent to do. He saved his people from their sins. And it's a blessed truth. The resurrection is the testification to the veracity of the crucifixion. That is, it speaks to the truthfulness that Christ really did do what he intended to do. Secondly, he stresses the post-ascension mission of the church. The post-ascension mission of the church and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So he, the Lord Jesus Christ, stresses the post-ascension mission of the church. That is, when Christ is exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, he dispatches his sent ones, his apostles, to go forth to all nations and declare the truth that Jesus Christ has died, Jesus Christ is risen, and Jesus Christ will come again in great glory. They're to go to preach the gospel, the doing, the dying, and the rising again of the Son of God. He strengthens uh, he, he stresses their post-ascension mission and the disciples, the, the book of Acts, Luke's follow-up book, his two-volume set, Luke and Acts, he follows up with the book of Acts, and that's where we see that very thing, the post-ascension mission of the church. The disciples go forth, largely the two figures, Peter and then Paul, go forth to the nations and proclaim this blessed Jesus. Fourthly and lastly, he encourages them with the coming and promised power from on high. Notice the language here. Actually, excuse me, I missed thirdly. So if anyone is taking notes, I know I'm talking fast and it might be hard to do so, but if you are taking notes, thirdly, he strengthens their unique position for proclamation. Notice what we see here. So we see verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now notice verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. So he strengthens their unique position for proclamation. They are witnesses of these things. Now, this could this could go one of two ways. They are the witnesses that will go out and proclaim Jesus. They are those martyrs, those witnesses that will go forth and preach the Lord Jesus Christ because it just it, Christ just said repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. So is it that? Or is it that they are the witnesses to his resurrection, to his resurrected glory, and to the Bible study that he just gave, proclaiming that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the, the Psalms speak concerning him? It's probably the latter, though the former is true, generally speaking. 
So he's saying, you are witnesses of these things. You're witnesses of my resurrection. That will be later when the apostle Paul writes of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that will be some of the sum and substance of his argument that we were witnesses to these things. Peter would write that we, we have not delivered to you cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the, the, the wisdom, the power, and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so they being eyewitnesses of their majesty are prepared by Christ to go forth and to preach the blessed Savior. And now lastly, he encourages them with the coming and promised power from on high. Notice the language. Behold, verse 49, I send the promise of my Father upon you, that is the Holy Spirit, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So he encourages them that the coming Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come, that they will be endued with power, that they will not be alone, but just as he had promised, there will be one given unto them that they might have the enabling strength to proclaim against venomous enemies the blessed riches of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we want to close with this point, the ascension of the resurrected Christ. The ascension of the resurrected Christ. Notice what we have beginning at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he, pray, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. The first thing we want to note is his pre-ascension blessing, the language here, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. There is something very important in this beyond just the general reality, the general statement that he blessed them. This raising of the hands, lifting up of the hands to bless his disciples, it reaches back to Leviticus and it speaks concerning the blessing that would follow the rendering of a sacrifice. So briefly, as we move towards a close, if you can turn with me in the book of Leviticus to Leviticus chapter 9. In Leviticus 9, we see here the connection to this pre-ascension blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Notice at first at Leviticus 9 and verse 7. Leviticus 9, verse 7, and Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now notice verse 22, then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. So there is something very special about the Lord Jesus Christ's blessing here prior to his ascension. Just like Aaron, though, as the better and the greater and the sole and alone high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ lifts up his hands and he blesses his people. And it comes with the weight and the veracity of the completed and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he offered up the sin offering, that he offered up that once for all sacrifice for guilty sinners, that he offered up the satisfaction for divine justice and divine holiness in the stead of all those who believe in him. And so as the blessed high priest, as we noted this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ raises his hands and he blesses his people. Now we see his ascension. He's carried up into heaven 
Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. That blessed reality of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection punctuated the truthfulness that Christ really did engage in the perfect sacrifice for sinners. That he was not, he was not defeated at the cross, but he was the hero born of woman, was victorious over the devil, over death, and over sin. The resurrection punctuates that, and the ascension establishes the reality that the judge, the perfect one, is going to be exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, where he will sit and where he will also stand, where he will sit as completing the work of the high priest and where he stands in support of his people and in judgment over those who would oppose him and his church. And we see here, lastly, his worship and devotion, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Shouldn't that be the, the people of God? We worship and we devote ourselves to the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice the language again. First off, they worshiped him, and secondly, this devotion. They were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. And hopefully we have this disposition. Hopefully we have this in our hearts, that we would be such who praise and bless God, that we would be such who worship our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, very God and very man, yet one Christ and our only blessed mediator. And hopefully this reality of the resurrection, the, as Christians, this is our hope. As Christians, we understand that this is the hope of the nations, the resurrected Savior. Our faith is futile if there is no resurrected Christ. We are of all men the most pitiable if there is no resurrected Christ. But there is a resurrected Christ. He did die. He was buried. He was raised in power and in great victory the third day. And he will bring an innumerable multitude to heaven on that great day where we will, as a blessed band of brothers, sing the praises of this Christ and sing the praises of this triune God forever and ever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth concerning the resurrected Savior. We rejoice in our blessed Christ and would ask you to give us hearts uh, that are consumed with the worship and adoration of our blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would rejoicing rest upon the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing we are not saved by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but we much rather are saved by the perfect and finished work of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in him and to go into this work, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray in his precious name. Amen.